you really feel on a very molecular level that you are protecting the public in a way I don't think most jobs allow you to feel. In response to her picking up a toy bat, he picked up a machete. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, and my co-host, Francie Hakes. How you doing, Francie? Good, Jim. That's great. Well, you're on the hot seat again today. Uh-oh. Yeah, we've talked to you about your best case already, but... We haven't heard anything about your worst case. Do you have one in mind? I do, and just for maybe a tiny bit of a change of pace, what makes this the worst case is sort of twofold, and I don't want to spoil it. But well, I have then a, don't. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? You gonna... I have a lot of worst cases. This is definitely not the worst worst case in the sense that um, it was terribly tragic. I have a lot of those, but. It was definitely my worst case. Okay, well, then let's get into it. So how did this case come to you? Were you a federal prosecutor or a local prosecutor at the time? I was an assistant DA, local prosecutor in Columbus, Georgia. It was my first job out of law school, and I had probably been in the office for less than a year when a case came across my desk. Now, I, after this, started specializing in crimes against children. But at this point, very early in my career, I, like most assistant DAs, had a broad portfolio. I did murder cases, assault cases, drug cases, all the way to shoplifting and child abuse. So a little bit of everything. Yeah. I know when I was a prosecutor, that's the same thing. I mean, we had 200 cases in our caseload, um, constantly juggling trials and suppression hearings and motions, and it was just insane. And every day was a mystery what was actually going to go to hearing or go to trial. You might have 10 cases scheduled to appear before court on a given, any given day, and which witnesses were going to show up, which cops were going to be there, which defendant got transferred or didn't show up on time. All those things would be just a complete mystery when you came in. It was, it was, it was mayhem. I wrote a lot about it in my book, Without Consent. <laughs> it, was a, it was a crazy time. How was your experience when you were 
baby prosecutor. Well, really exactly the same. It's funny, I always, I don't know how many of our listeners have ever watched the TV show MASH, but I always called the DA's office the MASH unit (laughs) of the law. Wow. Because that's what it was. You know, um, Hawkeye Pierce on that show used to call it meatball surgery. Like all they were trying to do was save the person's life and get them to a hospital where they could be really treated. And I always looked at being an assistant DA like that. We had hundreds of cases on the docket. And when you would go to a calendar call, the calendar call might have 100, 125 cases, and it's you and maybe one or two other ADAs, and you're sharing those cases. So you have 30 or 40 maybe on any given calendar call, and you really have no idea which one of those might be going to trial. So in order to be really prepared, you had to be able to prepare More than one case for trial, which, as you know, is almost impossible. And you may prepare two or even three minimally. They all plead. And all of a sudden, the judge is calling case number five. That defense attorney asks for a continuance. The judge grants it. And now you're at your six, seven, eight, nine or ten case. And you haven't even talked to the witnesses because you never expected to get there. That happened to me more times than... uh, than I like to remember. Yeah, I, I know. It was always it was always frantic and frenetic. Um, but I will tell you this. It taught me how to think on my feet. It taught me how to be able to be calm in very stressful circumstances and just realize that you are a human being and you have limitations. But the stress definitely got to me. There's no question about it. The stress was tremendous. I always like to tell people that being an assistant DA, which I did for six years, was the best job I ever had. And I believe that to this day. Being a federal prosecutor was a much better career and an easier job. My fellow federal prosecutors out there might not like to hear that. Much more sophisticated and and planned out and time and, yeah more time i always had a lot more time i knew when a case was going for trial almost every case was specially set so you were preparing one case at a time you had lots of time to talk to witnesses and prepare for arguments and do motions so it was it was it was just be honest an easier job being a federal prosecutor than being a state prosecutor yeah, m- many more resources and i think you you hit the nail on the head, it's the time to prepare that is such a luxury when you're at the ADA. You just don't have it. No, but what a great job. Not in job. a big city. <laughs> no, but what a great job. I mean, it's exciting. You get to deal with the public. You really feel on a very molecular level that you are protecting the public in a way I don't think most jobs allow you to feel. Yeah. So that's where I was. All right. So what kind of case was it? This was an attempted murder case, aggravated assault and attempted murder. And it was really, really interesting case because you had a couple, a man and a woman, and I'm not going to identify either one of them for reasons which will become clear later. You had a man and a woman, they were dating. Uh, The man actually was a previously convicted murderer. Really? He had served about 10 years for manslaughter about 20 years prior to the events of this case. Wow. In a in a murder case that had no relationship or similarity to this one. Well, what kind so, of case was it? Well, it was just a like a bar brawl. It was a bar brawl where he killed someone. So Wow, that sounds like a violent person. He's a, he's a terrible person, terrible human being. But when we eventually went to trial on this case, the jury never got to hear that. 
because it was unrelated. So the jury never knew that this person was a previously convicted murderer, which is one of the most frustrating things I think about the justice system. So I'm in my little windowless office in the DA's office because I was the new kid. And I got the case file and I'm reading through it and I see that it's a man and a woman and they've gotten into some sort of domestic dispute. She alleges when police interview her at the hospital that he had beaten her quite frequently. And what happened that brought the charges in this case was, she said, was that they had been fighting because she was pregnant and he did not want her to have a baby. And so he started beating her to try to persuade her to have an abortion, and she refused. And he was beating her, and she picked up one of those little toy bats. It was a little toy Atlanta Braves bat. You know, they're about five or six inches long. It's like a souvenir you get from a baseball game. She grabbed one of those and hit him in the forehead with it, which raised a big lump on his forehead, but otherwise was completely ineffectual to stop the beating. In response to her picking up a toy bat, he picked up a machete. And he started hacking at her, literally hacking at her as she is trying to flee the house. He's hacking at her with this machete. He hacks at her arms. He hacks at her neck. It's very clear from her injuries that he is trying very hard to cut her head off. Oh, jeez. She was severely injured, lost most of the use of one of her hands because of the neck injury, because it cut so many nerves Mm. uh, running down to her hand. But she still ran. She managed bleeding profusely and with her neck not severed but cut terribly deeply. She managed to run out of the house with him chasing her with a machete people notice yeah when you're running down the street because you're running down the street with a machete chasing a woman who's bleeding severely and screaming the man quickly realizes that he is going to get caught so he throws the machete no one sees it he throws the machete somewhere discards it it is never found oh wow which is one of the problems in this case and then he flees she collapses, is found by someone in the neighborhood, and 911 is called, and she's taken to the hospital uh, unconscious. Surgeons there in Columbus fight to save her life. They're not sure they can, and they do. They mm. save her life, but she wow. is going to be disabled for the rest of her life. And I get the case. They find the man. He fights with police when they arrest him, but they get him secured and subdued. Do they charge him with that? Yes. He was absolutely charged with resisting arrest. And they get him into handcuffs and they arrest him and bring him into custody. And he gets detained. So no bond for him. Because, of course, the judge doing the bond hearing gets to know Mm. that he's a previously convicted murderer. And you've got a woman with clear injuries from some kind of hacking assault. And all he has is a welt or lump on his head. So I get the case, and the evidence is pretty clear. It seems real obvious to me that he tried to kill her. So we have him indicted for attempted murder, for aggravated assault, for aggravated battery, 
which some people might not know, aggravated assault is not the actual physical touching, but it's the putting the fear of someone receiving an immediate serious injury. That's the aggra- That's the actual assault. Aggravated meaning a serious injury. Right. The battery is the physical part of the assault right. itself. And the aggravated battery means she received a serious bodily injury. You're bringing me back to torts in law school. That's right. That's right. Torts class is where you learn that battery is actually a physical touching, whereas assault is a threatened touching. That's right. So we had all of that. Threatened battery. We had all of that here in this case. And of course, we had the resisting arrest, uh, the assault on the police officers. And so I'm putting together my case, and really, there's not very much evidence. I mean, this is one of those cases where. The woman nearly died. So this looks like it's going to be a really short trial. Mm -hmm. We have a couple of responding police officers who took her statement, who saw the condition she was in. We have the hospital personnel to talk about the severity of her injuries. And then we have the victim herself. Mm -hmm. And that's really about it. So it's funny. I think the perception is always that these serious injury trials are going to last weeks and weeks, but this case is literally going to last probably a day or two, and that's right. about all. So my preparation for trial is not very complicated. It's talking to the police officers, reading their reports, talking to the victim, and preparing her to testify. And she is absolutely 100% terrified of being in the courtroom with him because he nearly killed her. And I should have also said one other sad fact of this case, and one of the contributors to why it's the worst case, is she lost her baby Mm. because of his attack on her. So he got what he wanted. He nearly killed her, and she lost the baby. So not very many months after this assault, she had to have time to recover so she could testify. And with her arm still in a sling, it's time for trial to begin. So as a good prosecutor, it's time for me to pick a jury. And I, at this time, I hadn't done that all that often. But picking a jury is one of those things that you see on TV, I think, and people don't understand uh, what it really means. At that time in Georgia, the defense got 12 strikes and the, of the jury members, and the prosecution only got six. So really, the defense picked the jury in Georgia at that time. Fortunately, finally, the Georgia legislature changed the law and now prosecution and defense get equal strikes the way we did in the federal system. Yeah, just so people know what you're talking about, when you pick a jury, uh, you get to get rid of people for cause, right? And do you also have an opportunity to get rid of people just for the hell of it? You do, as long as there's not a discriminatory reason. But yes, you can say, as I did very often in trials, um, giving away secrets here, um, I don't want engineers on a jury. They expect per- these are these are sort of stereotypes, but they work. I don't want engineers on a jury. They want perfect evidence. That doesn't exist. Um, sometimes I don't want teachers on juries because they tend to be very empathetic, nice people. And I worry that they'll be empathetic toward the defendant. Things like that, that, that sort of you get taught as a baby prosecutor and then you learn through trial and error picking a jury. And I should say it's called jury selection, but really it's jury deselection because <laughs> you don't pick the people who end up on the jury. You get rid of the people who don't end up on the jury. All right. So you pick the jury and what happened? So we pick the jury and the trial begins. And I think it's going really well. Um, when we put 
the victim up on the stand, because let's face it, she's the most important witness. She is clearly terrified of him. Uh, the photographs of the defendant's minimal injury from that ridiculously small toy bat have already been put into evidence. And she testifies about the assault. It's clearly telling the truth. She suffered all these injuries. He has no real defense. His defense attorney is using self-defense mm. as his argument. And that's what he claims. He says that it was a fight. It was mutual combat. And all the defendant was doing was defending himself against her attack, which at the time I thought was absurd. And I thought, no way would any jury buy self-defense. First of all, she's a very small woman. She's petite. She's maybe five foot five, five six. The defendant is a solid six feet, 230 pounds. Yeah. Plus, uh, there's another issue here, isn't there? She had a baby. She was pregnant. And that baby was completely defenseless, right? Mm, that's right. Didn't he attack the baby as well? Well, of course he did. And he made her lose the baby. Mm. Um, it, she, the, the power differential between them was obvious and glaring to me. And I assume that it would also be to the jury. I think I've always felt like I'm kind of one of those, I see things very black and white. It just is or it isn't. And that's what this case was to me. A very clear case of attempted murder and aggravated assault of an enraged convicted murderer on his pregnant girlfriend, period. That was the scenario. Um, the defense fought very hard, by the way, to keep evidence out of her pregnancy because they were rightly worried that it might inflame the jury. Um, but it was a fact. It was a fact. And it was a fact that made the power differential more obvious and to me was extremely relevant. The judge saw it my way. So the jury did hear that she was pregnant and that she lost the baby because of the assault. And so she was cross-examined by the defense attorney and he tried to make it look like she had been the attacker. Um, I didn't think he did a very good job, but you never know with these things. We do closing arguments. I'm very passionate, of course, about how this is a clear case. It's an obvious um, attempted murder and aggravated assault. We make our arguments and the jury goes out to deliberate. Mm. And how it long was, were they out? It was a longer deliberation than I expected. And of course, <laughs> I have to admit, I always thought all of my defendants were 110% guilty. I always expected the jury to come back in 15 minutes. I just always felt like that seemed obvious to me. Right. I've given you the evidence. Make the call. But most times it doesn't happen quite so easily. And it took them several hours and hours and hours went by. And I'm getting more and more nervous because a long verdict often is not a good verdict for what I always think of as justice. So I waited. And the judge calls down to my office. We're in the same building. And I go back upstairs and there's a verdict. And the jury files in, you know, there's all this information out there and you see in TV, oh, it's a good sign or a bad sign when the jury looks at the defendant or doesn't look at the defendant. I just never ascribed to any of that. I don't think it really is valid. But I'm staring at the jury. Right. And I want to see if I can figure out what they've done. And I can't. They're very all very poker-faced. And it was a very mixed jury, mixed race, mixed gender, everything. So it was a, a real cross-section of society. And the jury foreman, a man, stands up to read the verdict. And they find him not guilty. 
of attempted murder. Wow. And they find him not guilty of aggravated assault. And they find him not guilty of aggravated battery. They acquit him on every single count. Even the resisting arrest? Everything. He is literally free to walk out of the courtroom. And now my heart is in my shoes because I feel like I have completely failed. I certainly feel like the system has failed the victim. Did you ever get a chance to talk to the jurors? I did. And really, that is what makes this my worst case. So, Francie, you've put together a really rock-solid case. you got a jury you think is going to be reasonable and fair and just. You put on your case. The victim takes the stand, does a great job. Your cops do a great job. You think everything's going well. The jury comes back and acquits the defendant on all charges. What the... Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. You know, I didn't lose that many cases in my career. I did lose a few. This one I'll never forget because it was so shocking. I mean, there are a couple of other cases I lost, child molestation cases and one drug case, that were very upsetting to lose. But it was at least a tiny bit understandable in the sense that it was someone's word against someone else's word, really. No physical evidence, no DNA, no eyewitnesses. So at least you can kind of understand why a jury couldn't make what I always thought was the right decision. But here, how could they possibly, did they buy self-defense when you've got this incredible power differential and these these near fatal injuries to this tiny little woman? So One of the things I made it my practice to do both as a state and federal prosecutor was talk to juries after every verdict, whether Mm. it went my way or not. Right. What's the best way to learn? Because otherwise it's all conjecture. Yes. Well, I learned nothing from this particular jury. What do you mean? Well, I'll tell you. So we always tell the jury that they can feel free to talk to us right after. And we wait in the courtroom. The judge tells the jury they can come back into the courtroom and talk to us or they can just leave and go home. They're under no obligation to talk to the lawyers. So I'm waiting in the courtroom and not a single juror comes to talk to me. So I think to myself, I'm never going to find out what happened in this case. I'm never going to be able to explain to the victim why now she has to live in the community with the man who tried to kill her and against whom she testified to try to put in jail. So she's in real danger now, and there's nothing I can do for her. Not one single thing. Incredibly helpless feeling, and she was devastated. And I think the hardest thing as a prosecutor is to look in the eyes of a victim when you've lost that case. You've failed to get that justice for them. Yeah. And then to just try to say, you know, good luck with your life. What do you do? But that's basically what happens. It's a terrible feeling. So I'm in my office the next Monday morning trying to get over this. Uh, I've never gotten over it, but I'm trying to get over it because, of course, I have so many more cases to deal with. And I get a phone call. 
and it's the receptionist at the front desk. And she says the jury foreman from my jury last week, this case, is in the lobby, and he wants to see me. Mm. So I gird myself because I'm thinking, all right, my boss would get real upset with me if I scream and shout at a member of the voting community because he's elected. So I'm trying to be calm while I prepare for him to be escorted back to my office because I'm mad. I mean, I am infuriated at their uh, decision, and I cannot wait to find out what possible explanation he could have that's going to justify this. So he comes into my office, we shake hands, he sits down, and we start talking about the case. And I say, I, I just don't understand what happened in this case. I don't understand how you could have possibly acquitted him. It was clearly a case of attempted murder. And he said, yeah, we all thought he was guilty. But the reason I wanted to see you today was wait, a couple. Wait. Yeah, wait. yes. Okay. Yes, that's what he said. We all thought he was guilty. And then I didn't get the, which I've gotten a couple of times, but we didn't think you proved it. No, no, that's not what he said. We all thought he was guilty, but there were a couple of issues. And I said, oh, okay, well, what were the issues? And his first explanation to me was this. You know, people don't like aggressive women prosecutors. Whoa. At which point, I really wanted to slug him. Because now he's blaming me and saying that somehow they ignored the evidence in the case because I am aggressively prosecuting the guilty defendant. It was incredible. It made absolutely no sense at all. And so I'm sort of sitting there stunned. And I said, okay, you said there were a couple of issues. After my behavior, which he didn't have any specific, uh, you know, points for, it was just aggressive women. We don't like them. I said, besides my behavior, what else was there that caused you to find not guilty? He said, well, let's be honest, Francie. She was a dancer. And she was a stripper. That was her job. And his... Rationale don't get to have justice. Be, be free of machete hacking? No, that's right. She was a dancer, so whatever happened to her didn't matter. He he, he didn't say said it that. didn't matter, but that's what his words said. She was a dancer, so we didn't convict him. In other words, she didn't deserve justice. So this violent repeat offender, I'm just going to say it, scumbag, gets to walk out free because he picked a victim who they didn't like her profession. Yes. And because the prosecutor was aggressive and a female. Yes. And of course, it's okay for a male prosecutor to be aggressive, just not a female prosecutor. And I'll just tell our listeners this was in the 90s, although I will say this sort of attitude can still prevail, but it was very prevalent in the 90s when I would sort of get that um, pat on the head or pat on the back. Oh, isn't she adorable? She's so aggressive. Incredibly maddening and frustrating. And here, a real miscarriage of justice. But that's not the end. Oh, 
There's more. There's more. So not only has he insulted me because of my style, failed to get justice for the victim simply because she was a dancer. And I tell him then, you know, this guy was a previously convicted murderer. He gets a bit of a surprised look on his face, but it doesn't really seem to affect him. Like, he still doesn't really care. Like, who did he murder? Another dancer? Exactly. He doesn't seem to care at all and asks no questions about it. So I say, you know, I think that we've probably talked about all we should talk about today because at this point I'm ready to explode. And I'm thinking about losing my job (laughs) if I actually explode on, you know, Joe Citizen, foreman of the jury. And so I tell him, I I think we're finished talking. And he said, well, I I did want to ask you one last question. And I say, okay, what's your question? And he says, well, I was wondering if you would like to have dinner with me sometime this Uh, week. (laughs) So although generally they didn't like aggressive prosecutors, he apparently did. I was beside myself with rage. I didn't even answer his question. I just told him to get the hell out of my office and never come back. Wow. Wow. And he looked shocked. Like, he expected me to say yes after he failed to find the truth in the case, which was staring him in the face, after he insulted my style as an aggressive prosecutor, which he would have admired in a man, and after he asked me out and I refused, he still had the gall to look surprised that I didn't want to go out with his magnificent self. And all of those things are why it was, far and away, my worst case. Wow, that is just so amazing. I mean, the arrogance of that. Ugh. And, you know, and the bias and the, you know, the just unapologetic disregard for human life and, you know, just based on status. It's just, it's so horrible. Well, it's so wrong. And, you know, you can probably tell, Jim, our listeners can't see, fortunately, but I am so aggravated again by just thinking about this case that I'm just sitting here like sweating and angry and I would really like to hit somebody. Not you, of course. But it it was a real eye-opener for me as a baby prosecutor um, to see that the justice system is definitely not always fair. And I was really shocked by that. I mean, I really, really was because I still am to this day a true believer that we have a phenomenal justice system. Of course, it has flaws, but I am a true believer in it. And this was a real slap to me that people could look the truth in the face and disregard it for bad reasons. I never expected that. That's it for today on Best Case, Worst Case. We're signing off now, and thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can subscribe to Best Case, Worst Case on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite listening app. 